Um, I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 2, and then John will come and be um, talking about that, helping us to explain, um, to understand more of God's grace shown through Jesus. Um, so Ephesians 2, it's on page 1173 in your church Bibles. I think these are amazing words. So as I read, let's pray that the Holy Spirit will take these words and write them deep in our hearts so that we can respond to him in praise and in obedience. Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's just pray. Father, thank you for your powerful word. We come to you today as people who can do nothing to earn your love or deserve your favor but thank you that you have poured out your love and kindness to us through Jesus. Lord, please open our hearts today so that we will soak it up like a sponge, that amazing love and grace of God, and that it will transform us from deep within and make us the people you want us to be. Pray for John. We pray that your spirit would work powerfully through him as he opens this passage to us. Please be at work by your spirit in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, John. Thank you very much, Alison. It would be great if you can keep Ephesians 2 open in front of you as we explore it together. And our title for this morning is Big Change, Big Change, and I guess when it comes to big changes, the invention of these things, the, uh, the good old smartphone, has got to be right up there, hasn't it? There are, I've been looking online, there are estimated six and a half billion smartphone users worldwide. Now, that's over 80% of the global population from a zero base about 20 years ago. That is phenomenal growth and change, isn't it? A UK-based survey suggests that here in the UK, we on average spend 4.8 hours per day on our phones. 
and uh, that we check our phones on average 58 times a day. That's every 12 minutes on average through our waking hours. Now, maybe some of those figures are a bit exaggerated. I don't know quite how they come up with them. But by any standard, this is astonishingly big change. And we're all aware that there are some downsides with that, but many of us actually find that there's a lot about that big change that has been brilliant and really, really helpful. Well, this morning, we're looking at a big change and a change that I want to suggest to you is actually even bigger than the smartphone revolution and even more important. I wonder if you're a, a fan of Les Miserables, the, uh, the book and the musical. Um, and if you remember Jean Valjean, the, uh, the French peasant um, in, uh, the, in the story there, who was imprisoned for 19 years for stealing uh, some, some bread for his starving family. If you know the story, on his release, Valjean was bitter and homeless after his imprisonment, but he's taken in by a saintly local bishop. And uh, after a night or two, he runs off and escapes with some of the bishop's silverware. The police arrest Valjean and bring him back to the bishop's home. But then something astonishing happens as this kindly bishop acts as if the silverware was not a theft, but a gift, and gives him the rest of his silver that he forgot to take at the time, hoping that he could go and sell it and make a life for himself. And that experience changes Valjean's life. From then on, he gives himself to serve the poor and the marginalized through business and through politics. A person changed, a heart changed, a life changed, and unambiguously change for the better through an act of undeserved kindness. I, I think that's bigger change than the smartphone revolution because changing a heart, that's really big stuff, isn't it? Very hard to do. And it's not just in movies. It's the same for people that we know. We're going to hear a story just after the sermon about somebody who's experienced this in her life. But think around our church family. Vic Jacobson, orphaned and homeless, put in prison for burglary, but then transformed by Jesus to serve and reach people all over the world. Or you might think of our caretaker, Arshad, on a pathway of addiction and destruction, but then he meets Jesus and he's changed into, frankly, the kindest gentlest, most servant-hearted of people you could ever meet. Or Sue, carrying so much pain from a difficult past, but welcomed and touched by Christian friendship, and now every Thursday serving food to homeless people outside our building. People changed when they encounter undeserved kindness. And in the Bible, the name for undeserved kindness is that word that we've already been thinking about this morning. It's the word grace. And according to Jesus in John's gospel, the God of heaven is full of that grace. He came from the Father full of grace and truth. 
He has lots of it. You know, the word grace appears 11 times in this book that we call Ephesians. And it's there three times just in the 10 verses that we've read this morning. It's a huge theme. And this morning, we're just going to pause to see for a few moments the power of that grace to bring about huge change in the lives of all who find it. Let's think, first of all, in verses 1 to 3 about the undeserved grace of God, undeserved grace. Thinking back quite a few years, it was my 47th birthday, and uh, it was passing by in its usually uh, sort of fairly quiet way. I don't tend to make a particularly big deal of birthdays. But then in the evening, I was sat in the lounge at home, all quiet and fine, and uh, and then the doorbell rang. Um, And A couple of moments later, it rang again and again and again and again. And soon food began appearing on the table because the people that came, came with food. And within a few minutes, a birthday party was underway. Alison had secretly phoned some of my friends and got this surprise party to give me a birthday that I would remember, even though I was 47. And I loved that evening. I still remember it with great warmth. But I sometimes reflect, what did I bring to that party? Absolutely nothing at all. I just sat there and was grateful. What had I done for it? Nothing. I didn't cook a single piece of food. And actually, I then reflected back and realized how rubbish I'd been at giving that kind of nice surprise to Alison over the years. I've tried to change that a bit since. I was grateful but I was kind of humbled because I knew that I hadn't deserved it and had done nothing for it. And I feel rather the same way when I get to the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2. We've just had over the last couple of weeks this Ephesians 1, this chapter of almost unimaginable blessings showered all over us in Jesus. Every spiritual blessing in Christ we've learned about. And you get to the end of chapter 1 and Christ has been given us head over all things to the church. Wow, how good is that? But just as we're celebrating, we get to chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. What did we bring to the party? Uh, Nothing. We were dead. Now, sins, when it talks about our transgressions and sins here, sin isn't only the stuff that we often regard as sin, the kind of what we think of as the, as the really bad stuff of kind of murder and rape and those kinds of things. Sin is a much wider thing that, that impacts all of us as human beings. It's basically trying to live as if God is not there or is not relevant, doesn't exist or pushed to the side. And when we live as if God is irrelevant, we basically die because the real human life that we were created for was a life that was centered on God and grounded and centered in God. That's human life. So when we push him to the edge, we forfeit that life. We die. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but dead people can't make themselves alive again. They're dead. And so were we. But there's more because second, we were enslaved. Verses 2 And three, the oldest lie, of course, in the world is that we find freedom by blocking out God. 
And it's a foolish way to go because it's really rather like a fish believing it would find freedom from escaping from the sea. In fact, it just goes to death. See, God is the source of our freedom, the one in whom we find true freedom. He's not the enemy of freedom. And therefore, when we reject him and push him to the margins, we don't walk into freedom. We walk rather into slavery. And Paul describes it here, slavery to the world. That is, the expectations of our society begin to control us. Slavery to the devil, end of verse 2. The spiritual power behind all that is evil, that begins to control us. Slavery even to ourselves, our flesh, our, our sinful nature, so that we become controlled by kind of animal instinct and desire. Slavery because we push God to the margins. And slaves can't free themselves. They're slaves. But then third, at the end of verse three, he says that we are guilty. End of verse three. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, the anger of God. Not just him flying off the handle, but his settled hostility to all that is destructive and evil. And there's so much of that in me, in us. We were guilty. We deserve condemnation because God will never be indifferent to evil. He will always be passionate for justice and righteousness. Now, this is pretty grim, isn't it? Because just as dead people can't make themselves alive and slaves can't set themselves free, so guilty people can't make themselves acquitted. They're guilty. You see immediately how it's just obvious that the whole idea that we can do something to fix this and earn the favor of God is just not possible. We can't. We're dead. We're enslaved. We're guilty, unable to make ourselves alive or free or forgiven with nothing to put on the table. But to such people with empty hands, God gives his grace. He gives his kindness freely, without cost, without deserving. We can't earn it. We don't earn it. Now, our pride, speaking personally, our pride and our experience make that hard to accept because the whole ideas of achievement and reward, they're kind of drilled into us from the day that we're born. And so we so easily imagine that it's the same with God. How do we get on the right side of God? Well, how do you get on the right side of your teacher at school or anybody else, any other significant other? Well, How do we do it with God? Well, you do more at church because God's into church, isn't he? You flog yourself harder to serve more, don't you? You give more, you pray more, you dare more, you study more and you sin less. And then God will love you more. Isn't that how it works? Because that's normally how it works. But no, it isn't the deal. God's grace only comes for free. And anything else is mere religion. A few years ago, we had a guy speak here called Rahil Patel. And he spent years in a monastery training to become a Hindu priest. He was devout. He was disciplined in everything and was very successful and looked up to. But he confessed that inside he was secretly alarmed because despite all of the religious devotion, he knew nothing in his heart was changing. 
Nonetheless, he traveled the world speaking to large crowds about his faith and about his spirituality. But eventually something just cracked for him and he knew he couldn't keep it up any longer and began to seek Jesus and read the Bible and came on an alpha course like the one beginning here on Wednesday. And as he explored the Christian message, he met Jesus. And as he described, he had to let go of all his ways of trying to impress God, realizing that they would never earn God's favor and simply accept what God had done for him in Jesus. He said, I now understand that the sole purpose of my life is to learn to be loved by God as I am. As I am. Undeserved. Freely given. Unearned. That's the grace of God. Free. Undeserved. But changes everything. Undeserved grace. Then second thing to explore in verses four to six is saving grace. Just have a look at the end of verse five, which tells us that it is by grace you have been saved. Why do we need saving? Well, we've already heard we are dead, we are enslaved, and we are guilty. But as we read through verses four to six, we discover something very wonderful, the gift of God's grace, which saves us from all those things. What it means is, verse 4, he gives us mercy because he's rich in mercy in exchange for that judgment and condemnation. Mercy in exchange for judgment. And then verse 5, he gives us life in exchange for death. Verse 5, he made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. And it means he gives us freedom and dignity in place of the slavery that we saw in verses 2 and 3. Because verse 6, God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, that doesn't immediately kind of sound very obvious as to what it means. But go back into chapter 1, verse 20, you'll find Jesus is seated in the heavenly sphere, the spiritual sphere, and he is seated there, sovereign above every power in the universe. And God's grace seats us there with him so that we are able to say no to every power which seeks to enslave us. Whether that's the expectations of our society, the world, it is no longer our master because we're sat with Jesus in the heavenly places. Or whether it's the devil who's trying to tempt us, but he's no longer our master because we're sat with Jesus in the heavenly places. Or whether it's the desires of our human nature, but they are no longer our master because we are sat with Jesus in the heavenly places. He is our master and he is sovereign over every power. And in that lies our freedom. So can you see how perfectly the grace of God in Jesus Christ meets our need? Remember, we were guilty. We were slaves. And we were dead. But we have mercy in exchange for judgment, life in exchange for death, freedom in exchange for slavery. Not through what we've done, but through what Jesus has done for us. Because on the cross, He took the judgment we deserved and gave us forgiveness instead. He died the death we deserved and gave us life instead. He became the victim who we truly were in order to give us freedom and dignity. Wow, this is big change. 
change. This is the change that really counts. But friends, I don't just want you to get the technicalities and feel, well, maybe I've sort of understood the passage this morning as if that's all this is about. No, I want you to feel this because when it gets into your heart, that's when it changes you. A number of years ago, I had a, um, a geography teacher. I've probably mentioned him to you occasionally before. But he was the kind of teacher, not the only one I've ever had, but he just sticks in my head. The kind of teacher who never seemed happier than when he was pointing out that you were wrong and had failed, especially with I was wrong and I had failed, or at least that's how it felt to me. And however hard you tried, you could never please him or escape that sarcastic quip and that smug grin. So am I the only one that ever had a teacher like that? I love teachers, by the way. I'm so grateful for them. This isn't meant to be an anti-teacher thing. Teachers are amazing. And actually, it's not just teachers. Parents can be like that, can't they? And so can bosses. And so can colleagues. In fact, pretty much anybody who's significant in your life can become like that. Unwilling to praise. Unable to affirm. Impossible to please or to satisfy. And when we've had a number of experiences of significant others in our lives who behave in that way towards us, we often end up transferring it onto God, imagining that he sees only our failures, cares only about our mistakes, only wants to judge us, and his prevailing emotion towards us is just, frankly, disappointment. We just didn't live up, did we? Do you know that feeling? And that sense that, Maybe that is how God is towards us. I just want to say to you, friends, with all my heart, the God of the Bible is not like that. This is not the God of Ephesians 2. The God of Ephesians 2 is the God of great love. The God who is rich in mercy. The God who delights to lavish grace upon us. If you belong to Jesus and your trust is in him and you are seated with him in heavenly places, God is for you and not against you. He delights in you far more than he's ever disappointed in you. He is the God of massive grace, of great love and rich mercy, enough to secure your freedom from the past and to give you a new start. That's the grace of God, saving grace, huge grace, fathomless, infinite grace. I want to urge you this morning, receive it. Live in it. Enjoy it. And make sure you're showing as much as you can the same grace to the people around you. Undeserved grace. Saving grace. And finally, verses 7 to 10, rich grace. Verses 6 and 7, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. There's the phrase, rich grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. This is, this is really very wonderful. What it's telling us is that God has a plan. And when Jesus comes again, his plan is that he will display every follower 
of Jesus. That includes you if you're following Jesus. God has a plan to display every follower of Jesus to all of the powers in the universe in such a way that they will see the profoundness of our need, dead, guilty, enslaved, see what God has done in Jesus to save us and transform us, and just be dumbstruck at the riches of the grace of God that he could do this and perhaps explode in praise and adoration. How could this big change ever have happened? How could God be so kind to the undeserving? How could his grace be so rich? How could his healing be so complete that these people stand before him in Christ, completely forgiven, completely restored, completely healed, completely reconciled to God? How can it be? And we did nothing but receive this, empty, this grace with the empty hand of faith. You get it again, verse 8. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. This not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. It's nothing that we did. And yet in Jesus, God has done this astonishing thing and brought about this huge change. And so God puts us on display in the universe to demonstrate and magnify and glorify his astonishing grace. But it's not just the future. God's rich grace changes us now. Verse 10, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Isn't that wonderful? The Christian life isn't meant to be just passive and uninteresting. No, God is inviting us into his mission. He has work for us to do. He's got a calling that we're going to see in the coming chapters to us to live the future now in unity with our brothers and sisters, to serve and reach and grow and release people, changing the world one person at a time. Oh, it's challenging work, but there is no better life to live and there is no better way to participate in the big change that really counts, the change that comes through the grace of God in Jesus. We don't do all that stuff to show how smart we are. Still less do we do it to make, us God, to make God love us more. That wouldn't actually be possible because he already loves us infinitely. No, we do it to display to the universe the rich power of the grace of God that someone as flawed as me, dead, enslaved, and guilty, could become an agent of the blessing and love of God for the world. That's grace, humbling grace, but wonderful grace. Undeserved, saving, rich, lavishly given. Friend, have you received that grace by turning to Jesus and trusting yourself to him? Have you given up trying to impress God or win him over and learned rather to receive his love humbly and for free? God never intended that grace would be merely a word in a creed. No, it is the most precious, liberating, and life-giving reality of the Christian life. 
And it's not just for your past, the moment when you became a Christian. It's today grace for your present, and it's tomorrow grace for your future. Have you received it? Are you enjoying it? Are you living in it? Are you displaying it? Because when grace is front and center in our lives, that's when big change can happen.